Has everyone got a Bible? I need a Bible. We're back there. I think uh, maybe uh, Muhammad's back there. If you need a Bible, Muhammad can help pass them out. We have all sorts of languages back there, whatever you'd like. You're definitely going to need a Bible. And I'm going to give you a warning today. Two warnings. First, we may not finish exactly on time today. So if you're watching your watch, just know we're probably not going to finish on time today. Second thing is, is I want to make clear from my message last week, I talked about the title was Heart Conditions and Anger. And I want to make sure as I, you know, sometimes we have to come back and look at our messages from the week before, that anger itself, by itself, is not necessarily sinful. I want to make sure everyone knows that. You know, God experienced anger. He experienced anger against sin. And we are possibly able to experience anger and not sin. Um, you know, we kind of talked about that, but I want to be clear that anger by itself is not necessarily sinful, but the heart behind that typically is. So I just want to make clear of that. Um, there was somebody that asked me about that, is anger itself? And I said, no, anger itself by itself is not sin. But usually how we act that out in our heart behind it, for me especially, I can speak, is usually based out of sin. So I just want to clarify that just in case... And I mean, Vicki, I can talk you out of some water in a minute. So we have been studying through Matthew chapter 5, as I'm sure most of you are very familiar with. And Jesus has been teaching the sermon or the message known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now this teaching, it began with speaking of those who were blessed, or the Beatitudes that some of you are familiar with. And then Jesus continued to teach, starting in chapter 5, and let us know For each of us, as Christians, who we are to be. We are to be the salt, and we are to be the light. Then Jesus continues, right? And he explains. He says, Unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he also said, He had not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. He's referring to the law. So next, last week, we started looking at sin. And this is when I was talking about anger. And many people, I think in Jesus' time, especially these religious leaders, and I think even today, there's many people that believe if they haven't actually broken God's commandments as they, ready, as they interpret them themselves and as they understand them themselves, that they then possibly would inherit the kingdom of God. So these Jewish people, they believed if they followed all these rules, and they even added traditions in there, that they would be saved or inherit the kingdom. So Jesus is going to address this today, and he's going to clarify what the law's true intention or the true purpose is. And that sin also is not just external or just outward, but it really comes from each of our hearts. Now, last week, when I closed the message, I closed in Romans. I don't know if you guys remember. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. And that's how I closed the message last week. I actually want to start this week's message with reading that again, because I think it's so applicable. So, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligations to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, You 
must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. And I think as we get into the subjects that we're going to talk about today, we need to start with that verse. We have uh, been studying on Wednesday, I kind of looked at it on the announcements, we've been studying a book on spiritual warfare, it's called Reclaiming Surrendered Ground. Again, spiritual warfare, very common topic, especially us living here and most of us being in ministry. And I want, as we were reading the book, and I've known this before, but one of the methods that Satan will use to draw us Christians away from our relationship with Jesus, that time with Jesus, is to lie, to lie to us about what sin is. And that ties to our study that we're going to be looking at today. Now, last week we did look at anger, and this week we're going to look at three other what I called heart conditions. They're adultery, divorce, and vows. Now, as we dig into these different subjects, that um, one of these lies that Satan presents to us, and especially, I think, those that struggle with a certain sin, is people can say and have said, I'm born this way. This is the way God made me. Or maybe... It's an addiction that I cannot control. We've heard this before. And this is one of the things we were looking at on Wednesday. Now I want to share a quote from the book that we studied on Wednesday because I think it's so applicable to what we're going to talk about today. Here's the quote from Reclaiming Surrendered Ground. We have got to choose which one we believe. If it's sin, there's hope. But if I'm just born this way... Or if I'm just a helpless victim of some powerful force or substance, then my situation is hopeless. The issue is sin, and we can change. I love that, and I think it's so applicable to what we're going to be looking at today. Because Jesus is going to address our heart conditions. And through these heart conditions, we see these outwardly things that have taken place that we're going to talk about. Adultery, divorce, and vows. Each one of these, as we look at these, though, should point us to our need for a Savior, Jesus. That's the bottom line. So let's begin. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 27. You've heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. Jesus begins this teaching with giving a commandment that I think all of us are probably familiar with. We're familiar, it's in Exodus 20, verse 14. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But I think as we start this, I think we should really define this commandment. First thing I see is this commandment, who is it towards? It's addressed to each one of us. And I think that's important. It's not addressed to someone else, it's addressed to us, each one of us. Also, as I see this commandment, it is something that we should not do. It's an action. It's something that each one of us individually chooses to do or not do. It's an action. So I wondered, what is this actual act, or what is adultery? I mean, so we're not supposed to do this. And I looked up Webster's like I did last week, Webster's 1829. I want to share their definition. It says, as the unfaithfulness of any married person to the marriage bed, and in a scriptural sense, all manner of lewdness or unchastity, as in the seventh commandment. In scripture, idolatry or apostrophe, 
from the true God. So after learning this definition, we learn that adultery in itself is not necessarily just a physical act, but much, much more. And in these different forms that we saw in this definition, it's all sinful. So Jesus has so much more he wants to say now about this command. Look at verse 28 back in Matthew. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now remember, as we go through this in these passages, these are Jesus' words, his commands. He says, if you even look upon a person with lust, you have sinned in your heart. So since this is the case, this is Jesus' words, I think we must know what is a lustful look. What does this mean? Think about this. At what point does a look become lust, which is sinful? How would you answer that? Think about that. Is looking at a person by itself sinful? Of course not. No. So what takes place in our hearts, in our minds, that turns this glance or this look into an act of sin? Warren Worsby, I'm going to read his quote on this. That look that Jesus mentioned was not a casual glance, but a constant stare with the purpose of lusting. It is possible for a man to glance at a beautiful woman and know that she is beautiful, but not lust after her. The man Jesus described looked at the woman for the purpose of feeding his inner sensual appetites as a substitute for the act. It was not accidental, it was planned. I also want to read this same verse in the Amplified Bible. I think some of you are familiar with this. Matthew 28, 5.28, Amplified Bible. But I say to you that everyone who so much as looks at a woman with evil desire for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Amplified Bible says evil desire. And again, I, I went back to Webster's to look up this. What is this? This is important because this is something we really need to understand what this is. And the Webster says to desire eagerly, to long after, to possess a carnal appetite or pleasure. Honestly, I think most of us understand what it means to lust after something, don't we? I think most of us know this. Jesus is clear that if one looks upon someone with lust, then sin is committed in our hearts. Most people, I think, though, as we look at adultery, we're talking about adultery, they would say, well, I haven't committed adultery. Most people, I believe, would say that. Or in the traditional or the physical sense, if you just read the Ten Commandments, oh, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yeah, I didn't do that. I've never done that. But according to Jesus' definition, who can say they have not lusted in their heart after someone or something? Probably not many of us. Many of us have lusted after something. So Jesus is going to expound how serious this is and how serious sin is in verses 29 through 30 back in Matthew. Let's read that. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Sin is very serious. Jesus makes this very clear. And he also makes another fact very clear. Is hell is real. 
Jesus is painting this very, very vivid picture of what is going on here and how serious sin is. And in these passages, Jesus is using this illustration. This is an illustration that Jesus is using to help each one of us understand what lengths each of us should go to to avoid sin. Now, he is not saying that any of us should pluck out our eye. He's not saying that any of us should cut off our hand. What he's saying is he's illustrating the seriousness of sin and the consequence of sin, which is eternity in hell. It's very serious. And Jesus makes this very clear. So it makes us ask, do we, each of us, view sin as Jesus views sin? Say, it brings up the question. I'm sure you've heard this taught on this passage, but say if someone did gouge out their eye, or maybe they got both of them, gouged out both eyes, would they still sin? Yeah. If you struggled with looking at a person with lust, and you lost all your eyesight completely, both your eyes, would you then be freed from that sin? No. A better example, this is an explicit message. I apologize for anyone, but this is a better example, because I think this needs to be said. Better, maybe a better example for some of us today. If you struggle with looking at pornography on your phone, and you break your phone and you crush it and you throw it out, would this fix your sinful behavior? No. Now, I know that comment there probably, probably, mostly applies to men. But what about gossip? We can all maybe go to that one. What if we got rid of texting altogether? Because that's basic how most of us communicate anymore. Would you be freed from sin if you couldn't text anyone from this sin of gossip? No. There is a real answer for this, though. Praise the Lord. A real solution for our sin. Praise the Lord. And I'm going to tell you about that at the end of the message. It's not gouging one's eyes out. It's not cutting one's eyes off his hand off, or it's not smashing your phone. There is an answer for sin. We're going to look at that at the end of the message. But Jesus wants you to know that sin is serious, and there is real serious consequences that are everlasting. And so he wants you to understand how serious this is. But for now, let's look at verse 31 and go to the next subject. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. You've heard the law that says... A man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. It's true. We can turn back to Deuteronomy 24.1 and we can look at that. Divorce was allowed. We know this. We see it in Scripture. But many people, I think most people, use divorce to cover up their sinful hearts and their sinful actions. We need to understand as we look at this passage... First of all, I believe, what is marriage? And we're just going to touch, I mean, we're just scratching the surface on all of this. But we need to look at this. What is marriage? If we're going to talk about divorce, let's look at marriage. And again, we're just going to scratch the surface on this. But let's turn to Matthew chapter 19, 4 through 6. Beautiful sound, the page is turning. Verse 4. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied, They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, 
but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. If we are Christians, if we are Christians, we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, then we believe and obey the word of God. Right? Everyone agree? And it says, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So Jesus has a lot more to say about divorce. Let's look at verse 32. Back in Matthew chapter 5. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. It seems men were using... I I got this. I'm going to give the quote. This is from a quote. Are using divorce to satisfy their lustful desires to marry someone else. This is sin. This is sin. Using their lustful desires to marry someone else and using this in the form of divorce. As we continue and look at this and talk about this, I want you to remember that these are Jesus' words. These are God's words that you may be able to get divorced. Right? There's provisions for it in the Scripture. There's certain exceptions. But, Otherwise, it is sinful. My question for you, you ready for the question? We're going to get some deep kind of things. Is unfaithfulness justification for divorce? What do you think? Is unfaithfulness, is if one person in the relationship commits adultery, is that justification for divorce? It's kind of a wide question. Now, this is my personal answer. My personal answer. And I'm going to explain it. The answer is no. I see some of you looking at me. The answer is no. Because first, first, we must seek to forgive that person and we must first seek to reconcile that relationship. It is not an automatic in my eyes, in my opinion. Because Jesus did that for each one of us, didn't he? That's the picture I see. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what we do for the other person. Forgiveness must be given for someone who has committed adultery. We must give it. Now that is a hard thing I couldn't even imagine. If they come in repentance, we must give forgiveness, just as Jesus has given us. So I said that, but I also want to look at Malachi. Most of you know where I'm going. Chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union, so guard your heart. Remain loyal to your wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Divorce should never be an option in our marriage, if we are Christians. You never view divorce as an option if you are married a Christian. This is how God intended it. Is there provisions for it? There is. But it's not what God intended. So as we marry and we're in relationship, divorce is not an option. Yes, there's provisions. I'm not going to go there. But God is so gracious, isn't he? As I said that, and as we just said how God hates divorce, God is so gracious. So, so gracious. Turn to Mark. Again, I'm going to a lot of scripture today because of the subject. Because I want scripture to speak about this. I gave you my opinion, but 
Mark chapter 10, 2 through 12. It's a lot, but I think we need to read it. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said, a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined with his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split them apart, split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if that woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. God did give a concession because he knew we would have hard hearts. Now, there's many, many questions around these verses, isn't there? There's many emotions. There's many opinions around these verses. And some feel very strongly one way or the other way. On the topic of divorce and the topic of remarriage. Some very strong opinions. I've tried my best as we go through this on a Sunday just to share God's will through his word and his plan for marriage through the scripture. I'd like to read one more quote. This is from gotquestions.org. It's a long one, but I think in this, they just did such a great job. And I want to read it all for you because they did an amazing job. What we can know for sure is that it is God's plan for a married couple to stay married as long as both spouses are alive. The only specific allowance for remarriage after divorce is for adultery, Matthew 19.9. And even this is debated among Christians. Another possibility is desertion. When an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse, 1 Corinthians 7.12-15. This passage, though, does not specifically address remarriage, only being bound to stay in a marriage. Instances of physical, sexual, or severe emotional abuse would be sufficient cause for separation. But the Bible does not speak of these sins in context of divorce or remarriage. We know two things for sure. God hates divorce. We've seen that in Malachi. And we know God is merciful and forgiving. Every divorce is a result of sin, either on the part of one spouse or both. Does God forgive divorce? Absolutely. Divorce is no less forgivable than any other sin. They did a great job. I couldn't have said it better, so I just want to share that with you, how they explain that. You got, go to questions.org. It's a great resource. I don't always agree with everything, but most of the things there I do. I just, they, they did a great job interpreting God's word concerning divorce and remarriage. Now, please note... As we read through these passages, I is looking at this, and I want to be clear that as you read through this, it talks about making the woman the adulteress. And I want to be very clear, the man, 100%, will be accountable before God for causing adultery to take place. I think that's clear, and you can see it in the other passages and the other scriptures. 
There's one more point before we move on from this subject that I want to, us to remember that what marriage is. And in the ESV study Bible, it says it's a reflection of the relationship between God and his people. When we talk about marriage, we talk about divorce, and we talk about remarriage, you need to have that in your mind of what marriage is. Because we see it in the Old Testament. We see divorce in the Old Testament. We see these things. So if you have any questions about divorce, marital counseling, remarriage, let's sit down and have lunch. Let's talk about it. It's a long subject. It's a debated subject. There's different opinions on the subject. Let's stick to the scriptures, but also we can talk about it. And maybe some of us may not always agree exactly on some of the things there. But my heart is to share the scripture with you and God's intention and God's will for each one of us in marriage. And also, while we say that, we're sinners. We're not perfect. I, I'm looking around. I know some of your testimonies. I know, some, I know my background. God is so gracious, so merciful. It's just, it just it amazes me. Yeah, it's just amazing. So let's, let's continue. Turn back to Matthew, wherever you're at. Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at verses 33 through 36. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows that you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. Do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Don't even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. We'll stop there. Now Jesus, in this verse, I believe he's probably referring to Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. And I wondered, you know, my, even my NLT says vow. I mean, we don't use that commonly. We say promise, we say some other things. But what is a vow? A vow is it's in, it's very important. It's a solemn promise, typically, typically before God, a vow. Which leads me to believe that along with these problems that these people were facing that God was talking about, you know, talking about anger, we talked about adultery, talking about divorce. Another problem, obviously, they had is keeping their word. Mainly keeping their word before God. It, it was also, this here is shown to be sinful. So, again, we see four examples that Jesus gives here and how they were making these promises upon these things. And I looked at these and I'm like, what is, you know, it says, by heaven, by the earth, by Jerusalem, by my head. Like, what is all this? I mean, what is this? And I was reading uh, on it and in one of my study Bibles, it said in early Judaism, people often substituted something else for the name of God when making a vow. Thus, one might swear by the temple, by heaven and earth, or by Jerusalem. This practice may have come in vogue in part to avoid the threat of divine retribution should the oath not be fulfilled. But there was also a concern to prevent God's holy name from being tainted by association with rash oaths and false promises. I think what it was is a lot of these men were making vows in such a manner that if they broke their word, they broke their promise, the way they set it upon, they didn't think they'd be accountable to God. That's what I think it was. They knew that they really didn't possibly intend to keep their word or their promise. Look at verse 37. Just a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't, 
anything beyond this is from the evil one. Is your word true? It's simple, right? Is your word true? When we say yes or we say no, is there truth behind what we are saying? Because I tell you right now, each one of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ are now ambassadors for Jesus. And our words, our actions should represent who Jesus is. And he is truth. Turn to James. James chapter 5, verse 12. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else, just a simple yes or no, so that you will not sin and be condemned. We are to be honorable in our yeses and our noes. Again, does your yes mean yes, and does your no mean no? I mean, it sounds simple, but I'll tell you, this is a real problem for so many of us, and even myself at different points in my life. Let's turn over a little more to Colossians. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. This is why. Live wisely among those who are not believers, and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive, so that you will have the right response for everyone. As we close with talking about these subjects, what I take out of this, to be faithful, to be obedient to God, is so much more than these physical outward actions that we're talking about. To be faithful and obedient to God is inward. To truly love Jesus begins in our hearts and our minds. As we read these passages and we come to understand more and more about God's perfect will for each of us. That's what we're looking at. God's perfect will for each of us. We know and we see that all of us, we miss the mark. We miss the mark. That God has shown us through the law. This law reveals to us that indeed we are sinners. We miss the mark. And we know the consequence of sin. It leads to death. So now with this knowledge, we each should see our desperate need for a Savior. It should draw us, draw us to see that we, we need help. We need Jesus. And it's Jesus who is that Savior. And He's the one who has paid for each one of our sins on the cross. And through faith in Jesus Christ, He offers each one of us grace. He offers us mercy. And He just asks that we come before Him in faith. Through faith in Jesus, we receive forgiveness. As we are talking about these difficult subjects, we receive forgiveness for all of our sins. All. Past, present, future. Turn to Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. This is important, especially as we discuss these things. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as the people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace become more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As I read this, I just want to like cry out and worship. It is so amazing for each of us, what Jesus has done for us. As we talk about things such as adultery, look what Jesus has done for us. 
It's amazing. Resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mentioned earlier when I was talking about sin that there is an answer to our sin nature. You remember? I said I'd give you the answer later. And Paul shares it with us right here in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. And I think I'm going to read the whole thing because, again, as we're talking about these things, I think we need to understand this. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what am I doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyways. But if I do what I don't want to do, am I really the one doing it? It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, inevitably I do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Today we're going to take communion. And communion is for those who have already placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're visiting us today, I welcome you. I'm so just blessed to have you here. But if you have not given your life to Jesus, please don't take communion. If the crackers and juice come your way, please just pass them on. And instead of taking them, just take this time to pray. Pray about who God is and that God would speak to you and speak truth about who you are and who He is and what He's done for you. But for those here that are born again, and have received the forgiveness of their sins through faith in Jesus Christ, then join us as we take communion today, as we take this time to reflect upon who Jesus is and what he has done for each of us. This is also a time that we ask that we, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to each of us anything in our lives that is unpleasing to God. And I'm careful with my wording there, you know, because you can always say, the Holy Spirit reveal any sin in our lives, right? Well, that's true. That's absolutely true. But I say anything unpleasing. Maybe some things aren't necessarily sinful, but they're not edifying to the Lord. I want the Holy Spirit to reveal anything in my life that is not pleasing to the Lord. And I want to turn to things that are pleasing to Him. And if there is anything, anything in our lives that need to be dealt with, if it's sin, if it's relationship problems, let's repent. 
Because as we talked about last week, each day we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. I talked about this last week. And as we do this, he calls us to offer ourselves as a sacrifice, but we, we want to come before him first. Because he's looking for that. So we're going to continue to pass out communion, and we're going to take some time just to pray amongst ourselves. And just, I, I just really challenge you just to take some moment, just to come before God and ask him. Ask him to reveal his will for your life. Reflect on who he is and what he's done for you. Let's pray amongst ourselves.